We walked in silence for a bit. Then I asked, What is evil? He considered this question for a while, then began, You don't seem to be the type to read scripture. However, there is something I used to say. Resist not evil. Because when you resist evil, you give it power. That is, by resisting evil, you believe it exists. By believing evil exists, you commit evil by resisting it. For evil is something that is automatically resisted by the nature of it being deemed evil. Evil is enemy, that which must be destroyed. For instance, the Romans believed my teachings were evil, so they murdered me. Or in the case of war, both sides always believe the other to be evil. The leader of a genocide kills all those who he believes to be evil. Evil, my friend, is a myth. Evil is the word used to create the conditions necessary for hatred to exist. For hatred is always directed towards that which is believed to be evil. And in hatred, there is always suffering. The only way to truly eliminate evil is through love, through forgiveness. That is, we defeat evil by taking its power away. Love takes evil out of everything, for there is no evil wherever love shines its light. End quote. That is an excerpt from my novel, On Death and God, where I essentially, uh, through the character Jesus Christ, I explain my viewpoint on what evil is through the lens of the quote in the Bible, resist not evil. Um, and w with that, I'll also say that my novel on death and God, it's available on my website now for free. You can get the PDF or the Google Drive or Google Docs link on my website at into-the-absurd.com. That's into-the-absurd.com. It is about a boy in the future, like in the 2030s, 2040s or something like that who is kind of repressed, uh, society kind of sucks, and he doesn't really know how to reconcile his fear of death uh, with living his life, right? Um, so he goes, he, he basically has to go to the deepest layers of hell, slay the gods, and save everything that he has ever loved. That's the story. So go check that out if you want. Uh, again, that's at into-the-absurd.com. I will post a link directly to the post that I have on my WordPress uh, that has the uh, PDF and the Google Docs link. I'll post that link in the description. So, anyways, uh, in this podcast, we're going to be... I, I titled it Morality and the Myth of Progress. So we're going to be discussing good and evil using some quotes from Beyond Good and Evil by Friedrich Nietzsche. And we're going to be discussing the myth of progress, which I've discussed on this podcast several times, including on the Welcome to the Machine episode, where I talk about it the most. Uh, and also Industrial Society and its Future, Part 1 and Part 2. I discussed this. Uh, so a, a lot of this I'll be using my readings from Industrial Society and its Future, Civilized to Death by Chris Ryan, and a few other books. And also Ishmael, I should mention. Uh, I should do a podcast on Ishmael and Civilized to Death. I don't know why I haven't done that yet. But I will eventually. So, anyways, we're also going to be discussing the archetype of the savior slash the hero. 
And since this is Christmas, I thought it'd be cool to uh, have one of those archetypes be Jesus Christ, right? Um, as a disclaimer, I'm not a Christian. I haven't read the Bible. I've only read certain verses, and I just know uh, certain details from the Bible. Um, my listeners who are atheists, probably most of you, uh, atheists or agnostic, um, or just non-religious, uh, don't be scared away, because obviously I'm not Christian, um, and I'm just talking about these things because I think, uh, some of the stories from the Bible do actually have some, uh, really interesting philosophical implications that I think are worth discussing. So with that being said, I'm going to go right into it. All right. So basically... The belief in evil is the very thing that creates evil. That's because the belief in such provokes one to commit evil acts against that which they believe to be evil. Uh, the, the label of evil directs one's fear upon that which is labeled evil. And in the words of Yoda from Star Wars Episode 3, fear leads to anger, anger leads to hate, and hate leads to suffering. In a world where evil exists, so too does hate necessarily exist. For the existence of hate is dependent on the existence of evil. After all, what do we hate other than that which we believe to be evil, right? We don't hate things that we don't think are evil, right? Um, and, of course, we may not say that we think they're, they're evil, but there is a, I mean, hate and evil kind of go hand in hand, just like uh, good and love go hand in hand. So, in Nietzsche's Beyond Good and Evil, he states, Whoever fights monsters should see to it that in the process he does not become a monster. And when you look into the abyss, the abyss also looks into you. This brings to mind that cliche, or the cliche, that revenge is a fool's game. Um, so, so, why is revenge a fool's game? So, if let, let's say you kill my dog, right? I get pissed off, so I go and I kill your dog. So basically, I just did the very thing that I was pissed off about you doing to me, right? So that not only makes me a hypocrite, also makes me a fool. Revenge is a fool's game, right? Uh, my, my friend Taryn often tells me that an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. And of course, that's not his quote. I don't know where that comes from. But yeah, eye for an eye makes the whole world blind, right? Because if you keep taking revenge on each other, you uh, eventually there won't be any dogs left in the world, right? So, and so if we're constantly fighting fire with fire or uh, evil with evil, then such a fire will only ever continue to grow and spread. So an evil act for an evil act makes the whole world evil, right? Modern examples of this in American policies include the war on terror and the war on drugs, both of which being complete and utter failures, right? We didn't stop terror. We didn't stop drugs. And in fact, there's probably more terror and more drugs than there were in the 80s when we started these policies, right? So why? Well, whenever we declare war upon something, 
the thing that we're fighting against, they're forced to become stronger in order to defend themselves, right? Uh, you go out and you fight drug lords, they're going to try to get better weapons to fight back, right? You go out and you fight terrorists, they're going to try to get better weapons or form different alliances to fight back, right? Uh, especially when you're uh, doing the very same things that they were doing to you, right? Um, like... Where I, I wrote this passage uh, in it, not in a journal entry of mine. Sorry, I stuttered there. And I think it says something along the lines of, "At last, they will say, as they become the men they sought to destroy, and at last." will be said by the men who kill them, right? Um, the people who oppress you, you'll end up killing them, taking over, and then all of a sudden you'll start oppressing people and they'll kill you and take over. And it's a endless cycle of oppressed and oppressor, right? Um, and... I did kind of, I, I kind of forgot to mention something. Um, there's that quote, that which doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And w with that said, when you go and you commit these evil acts against people uh, and you don't crush them entirely, they're going to end up bouncing back stronger than they were before, right? So, uh, and, and that's, uh, I'm not sure if any of you have read The Art of War, but there is a passage in there where, you know, you're supposed to crush your enemy entirely, or just not attack them at all, because if you don't crush them entirely, they're going to come back and kill you, right? <laughs> so, uh, anyways. So, what is evil but a word, right? Evil is just a word. Evil, right? You designate evil to something, and it strikes an emotion within you, right? But evil isn't an actual thing that exists outside of the human psyche, um, it, it is with this that I feel, I, I feel the foolishness of the man who says, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Such a man is blind of the fact that words have within them the power to break families apart, kill millions of people, and wreak all sorts of havoc upon the world. After all, why is it that there is such a thing in European folklore as magic words? Right? The, the, like the magic words used by witches and wizards. Uh, words are, by all means, a type of magic, and they cast psychological spells upon us. For, for instance, uh, let's say you're at some party, right? Or you're at dinner with your family, and someone says just one word or one sentence, just one word, one sentence, that completely changes the vibe of the entire rest of the night. Everyone's on edge after that sentence. Um, they just say something, right? And it just completely changes everything. Um, there's like a, a weird anxiety in the air after they say this, right? So I'm sure everyone who, who's listening to this podcast has experienced something like that, where someone just says something and it just changes everything, right? 
one word can have a profound effect on the psychological states of numerous people, right? So in a sense, words have the power to almost change the feeling in the air around us. Um, there can be like, for, for instance, during the COVID-19 epidemic, uh, the media kind of struck fear in the air throughout the entire United States. And of course, well, like I, Master Yoda said earlier, right? Uh, fear leads to anger, anger leads to hate, hate leads to suffering, right? So the, the problem is that we live in a world that is centered around what Jung refers to as the sacred word. And uh, go, go check out uh, Minami Stone's podcast, uh, Every Trivial Fact, his Will to Power episode. Him and his guests discuss, uh, I think it's logocentric worlds, how we live in a logocentric society. And this is kind of what I'm getting to at here, or getting at here. Um, words in the imagination are, for the most part, worshipped almost like gods in our society, right? Um, Coca-Cola, right? Coca-Cola is a word. It's a brand, right? It's a symbol, and it represents something. Disney represents something, right? Uh, that there's a hyper ideation on the meanings and more importantly the connotations of words in our society we can take the example of the degenderization of words used to describe like uh servers right uh, no longer are people referred to as waiters and waitresses because waitress is supposedly demeaning for women um, that is some women believe it is demeaning to be thought of as a woman now, if a woman believes it is demeaning to be thought of as a woman, then that consequently means that this woman believes for some reason that women are worthy of being demeaned. And in our society, words like actress or waitress are deemed as, quote-unquote, evil, because the people who are represented by these words feel themselves to be somehow lesser than those who are called actors and waiters. Or um, referring to all actors as actors somehow then revokes the feelings of inferiority that is felt by female actors when they are called actresses. Yet, it is more so that female actors simply don't want other people to see them as female actors, even though the only difference between a female actor and an actress is what they call themselves. Right? Um, feel free to come at me with that. Um, Please tell me your thoughts and opinion on that. I mean, obviously, a lot of you will probably disagree with me. And that's totally fine because what I just said is an opinion. It's not a fact, right? It is 100% an opinion. It is not based in any truth or lie. It is just an opinion. So come at me with that. Let me know what you think. Um, I'd like to hear your thoughts. So another example of this hyperradiation in the United States is uh, the Department of Defense, right? The quote-unquote Department of Defense, right? By calling it the Department of Defense, it diverts attention from what the Department of Defense really is and uh, what it used to be called, right? It used to be called the Department of War. After all, how much defending does the Department of Defense really do? 
Uh, it, it seems to me that most of what the Department of Defense does is attack, which is the complete opposite of defense. Uh, of course, they call attacking defense. They say that, oh, we go and we fight. We invaded Iraq to defend us, right? Um, yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, you did a whole lot of defending in Iraq. Yeah. Um, all right. So words are used in our society to sway opinions and feelings about those in which the words are referring to. So if a ruler wants their people to think of their wars as a good thing, then they will rename war as defense, right? So too does the wise ruler rename theft as tax and the wise master rename slave as worker. And also I, I did want to mention when I said that thing about Iraq, uh, I'm not like saying that the veterans that went over there and risked their lives uh, weren't doing that for us because they were. Um, they, they were doing that for us. My, my uncle Nick went to Iraq. Uh, he fought in the Iraqi war. Um, and I greatly thank him for that. And I appreciate that he did that. And I love my uncle Nick and I love all the, I guess I, I don't love all the people who went to Iraq, but I appreciate all the people who went to Iraq, uh, because they thought that they were doing it for me, right. For, for us, for this really, it's an amazing nation, right. Uh, but what I am saying is that the people in charge of the people or the people who sent our soldiers to Iraq to die didn't have our best interests in heart. And I don't think that they were defending us by that decision. Um, do I believe that the soldiers thought that they were defending us? Yes. Do I think that their actions were brave and noble and respectable? Absolutely. And I appreciate their service 100%. So I just want to add that disclaimer in there. Um, because there is definitely a stark difference between the people who work for an organization and the people who run it, right? And I starkly disagree with the people who run the United States military so anyways where did it all start with this uh sacred word right when did the sacred word take control of our entire society so i think the origin of the sacred word is entirely unknown however we can look to one of the world's most famous stories to gain an insight into how long this has affected our world and that story is genesis the, the story of Genesis has been around for much longer than even the Old Testament itself. And uh, it spans across several cultures over thousands of years. So, I'll just explain the story for those of you who don't know. I'm sure most of you know, but I'll just explain it anyway. So, in the story, God tells Adam and Eve that they can eat anything they want in the Garden of Eden except for the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Nonetheless, a serpent approaches Eve and convinces her to eat from the tree. Eve then convinces Adam to eat from the tree as well. And after this, Adam and Eve notice that they are naked, hungry, and scared, right? There's predators around. Uh, they, don't, they feel like they don't have enough food, um, and they're naked for some reason, right? Uh, because they don't have a concept of clothing. So it is here that the gods realize that they have eaten the forbidden fruit, right? And with that, God creates clothing for the two of them, along with a till, and condemns Eve to be subservient to Adam and Adam to cultivate the earth. And I said gods because uh, I was reading the King James Version of Genesis, and there's part of it where 
it said uh, something like, we can't let them eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good, good and evil because they'll become like us. Um, as in God is in us, or there's gods up there, right? It, it, it's an, that's to tell you how old the story is, right? It has some uh, uh, polytheism uh, roots in it. So a- anyways, the, the serpent as the embodiment of danger exemplifies our ancestors' belief that danger provoked us to believe, and that is, know of such things as good and evil. Um, and with the knowledge of good and evil, we were condemned to cultivate the earth for all of eternity. And, you, you know, part of me kind of wants to go back to that, uh, where I said believe, and that is no. Um, and, and I want to ask you guys something to j- just consider it. What is the difference between knowing something and believing it? Really, what is it? What is the difference? Because in a sense, there isn't really much of a difference between believing something and knowing something. Of course, you'll say, I believe something because um, you you believe things that you don't have proof of, but you feel like you know it, right? And you know things that you have proof of. I mean, sure, that could be true. But there's still an element of belief within knowing things, right? It's kind of like a Venn diagram of sorts, but... Anyways, uh, so with the knowledge of good and evil, we were condemned to cultivate the earth for all of eternity. So now the the story of Genesis can be taken in several ways. In my novel, I take a much different route of interpretation, as I instead explain the links between the origin of consciousness, uh, or the idea, and the story of Genesis. Um, And and another side note from that is that um, in my book, I use some parts of the Bible, and I kind of just change them. Uh, just basically, I I was just like thought some stories in the Bible were cool, so I just changed them uh, to kind of make my story. Um, it's basically like contorting the Bible to kind of be uh, kind of stories that I would prefer it to be like instead, basically. Um. That's kind of what makes my novel unique. It's kind of the revision of some stories. I revised, I rewrote the story of Genesis, essentially, at least part in part of the book. But anyways, um, in my novel, I take a much different route of interpretation. Uh, as I instead explain the links between the origin of consciousness, the idea, story of Genesis, right? I already said that. However, for the most part, I think Genesis is our ancestors' explanation of the origin of Young's sacred word um, and our ideation upon it. Um, It is the origin of us becoming a logocentric society, logocentric culture. Um, And that also has links with our agricultural ways as well. Um, or, Or more so, our ideation upon morality, right? Because morality kind of came about with property as well. We, we look at the Ten Commandments, right? The Ten Commandments kind of have a... I think I said this in my Welcome to Machine episode, but the Ten Commandments all list... Um, it kind of creates a foundation for the existence of property. Uh, not only that, uh, property that is as if uh, God is recognizing the existence of property, Right? 
um, that humans can have property, right? Like uh, don't steal, right? That means that there's property, right? So uh, anyways, so our, our ideation upon morality. If the whole world is in need of cultivation, what does this imply? Well, cultivation in general means to help something grow or likewise to merely care for something. Cultivation is likewise interpreted as farming. Nonetheless, if the whole world is in need of cultivation, then this implies that the whole world needs care. Yet prior to eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the Garden of Eden was absolutely perfect. And in my view, the Garden of Eden is merely the entire world prior to the conception of the knowledge of good and evil. Right? It is as such that upon obtaining the knowledge of good and evil, the entire world was no longer perfect. It no longer had within itself everything that Adam and Eve needed. Instead, the world needed cultivation. And if the entire world needs care, then this implies that the world is sick. In the context of Genesis, this consequently means that the whole world is evil. After all, as Nietzsche says, around the hero everything turns into tragedy, or conversely, the good man sees the whole world as evil. It is thus that Genesis not only exemplifies the origin of the sacred word, but likewise the beginning of our struggle against nature, or more so our belief in that there is such a thing as struggling against nature. Again, there are several rabbit holes we can dive into with this story, but for the purposes of this episode, we will be taking the morality and quote-unquote progress route. Now, if we believe, as Thomas Hobbes did, that the natural, uncivilized life of man was nasty, brutish, and short, then we are likewise guilty of believing that the natural world is, for lack of a better term, evil. Man is good, and nature is evil. This cultural subconscious belief is even easier to see when we notice that Eve was the one who convinced Adam to eat the forbidden fruit, right? It's not father nature, it's mother nature, right? And it was woman who ate the fruit, who committed the original sin. Now, if we believe that nature is evil, then this likewise directs our hatred upon nature, thereby causing us to commit evil acts upon nature, right? Um, the, the belief in the evil of nature will continuously provoke humankind to destroy it in order to make space for more of what humankind believes to be good, right? And that is, <laughs> that's humankind, right? And this is apparent when we think of the fact that there are 7.9 billion people in the world today. There's almost 8 billion people on the planet, right? And if you recall, again, from my Welcome to the Machine episode, uh, this is a product of our society's built-in perpetual engine of growth. That is, more people amounts to more production, which then amounts to more consumption, which then amounts to, you guessed it, more people, right? Uh, and as basic physics and biology will teach you, uh, in order for something to live, something else must die, right? Because, uh, Energy is neither created nor destroyed, right? It's only transferred, right? So in order for something to live, something else has to die, right? Because all living things, except for plants, uh, eat other living things to live, right? So, um, you know, so if there are more people, there will consequently be less of everything else, right? Uh, sorry for the stuttering there. More people less nature. So we can see the effects of this condemnation everywhere. 
that which is natural is constantly being deemed as evil. And this is something that Nietzsche talks about in so many of his works, uh, basically the condemnation of what is natural. Um, so many things are condemned that are totally natural, right? Um, sex is evil. And today, gender is evil, right? Desire is evil. Desire has always been evil. Um, uh, desire has been known as evil for a very, very, very long time. Um, and the list goes on and on. Um, I, I will say there that uh, this is something hypocritical of Nietzsche. Um, he's always saying stuff like that, uh, you know, we shouldn't be just like giving in to our desires. We should be like working hard and trying to uh, get something. But then he also says, you know, we shouldn't resist what's natural, right? Um, but, you know, obviously every philosopher has contradicting ideas because, you know, it's not like these things are absolute rules. Um, to live by, um, everything can be taken as a grain of salt, and you can kind of um, resist nature sometimes and not resist it other times, right? You know, we can't be so close-minded as to think that uh, we shouldn't be, we should be doing one or the other all the time, right? So, anyways, um, the the list goes on, right, of natural things that are considered to be evil. Um, however, what natural thing does our society consider to be the most evil, right? And it's interesting because Microsoft Word, uh, they underline that blue and they want me to say evilist, but I didn't even know evilist was a word. Um, it, it doesn't sound like one. Anyways, uh, the thing that our society thinks to be the most evil is, of course, death, right? Um, which is really the most natural thing ever, right? All living things die. And I find it hilarious that the left both advocates for protecting the environment while likewise being anti-war and anti-disease, right? What, what leftist politics, politics miss is the aforementioned fact that more people implies less of everything else, right? War and disease are fundamentally the only real cure to the environmental crisis. They're simply too afraid to admit it. The problem isn't our use of fossil fuels, it is us in general, right? Because uh, if you have more people, you gotta destroy some nature to build a house, right? Build houses. So the uh, civilization as a whole is killing the natural world, not fossil fuels. And of course, fossil fuels are killing the natural world, but as a civilization, we're not gonna like stop using them, right? Uh, fossil fuels, it kind of just came with the package, right? Just like money, um, like capitalism. All these things just came into in, in the package of civilization, right? Now, most of the propaganda in favor of civilization is found in the widespread belief in the concept of scarcity. That is, uh, that the natural world simply doesn't have enough resources to feed us, right? And while this is definitely true in a world full of 8 billion people, like it is today. This definitely wasn't true when we were hunters and gatherers, right? Uh, hunters and gatherers always had enough to eat, and if they didn't, then the population naturally decreased to allow for the remaining people to have enough to eat, right? Uh, that there's always enough to go around for the vast majority of people. 
Now, with that said, I'm not saying that agriculture is bad. However, the overuse of agriculture to the point where we're making way more than we need, that definitely led over time to the natural world uh, simply not being enough for us. It didn't sustain us. We had to engineer the natural world to work for our growing population, right? And uh, having too many resources led us to create, well, too many people, right? Which then led to even more resources and so on and so forth. And now all of a sudden we're sitting uh, 50 minutes in traffic, right? Um, we have smog in the air. Uh, we have all these people crowding our space when we're walking around. Um, the world is just full of a lot, a lot, a lot of people, right? Um, and I, I love people, don't get me wrong. I love most people that I meet, right? But uh, would the world be better off if there was less of us? Um, absolutely, because then we would see, for instance, we would see a lot more elk around, right? If you're a hunter, you'd see more elk uh, or deer, right? Um, the, the world would be a better place with less people. But unfortunately, we gorge ourselves, uh, we want more and more and more and more, and we don't want to stop, and we want to keep growing, endless growth, endless growth. And that's the goal of civilization, right? Civilization wants to always continuously grow, right? Uh, but endless growth shouldn't be what we want, right? Because what is endless growth? I think I talked about this Welcome Machine episode, I don't remember, but... When a cell on your body endlessly grows, we call that a tumor. That's cancer. If something is endlessly growing, it's not supposed to endlessly grow, right? It's supposed to divide. It's supposed to create a new thing, right? But our society wants to grow like a cancer cell across the earth and kill it, which is exactly what we're doing. Um, anyways... Uh, prior to the conception of the so-called knowledge of good and evil, uh, scarcity was nothing but a feeling in one's stomach, right? Now, with the natural world being considered as evil, so too is hunger considered to be evil. And if hunger is considered as evil, then being full will consequently be considered good. Uh, th there's a good example in uh, Ishmael uh, by, by Daniel Quinn where he basically brings up that um, people starving in Africa, right, we keep sending them food. And when we send them food, they make more children. And so we have to send them more food the following year. Consequently, they make more children again. Population keeps increasing, increasing, increasing. We keep sending more and more food. Um fact of the matter is we just need to stop sending them food and the population will correct itself on its own right sometimes when you do nothing it fixes the problem because when you keep adding more fuel to the fire the fire gets larger right um but it doesn't change the fact that it's fire the fire just gets bigger right but you can still have a small fire and keep it going, right? Uh, so my, my girlfriend's father, he brought up something a few weeks ago regarding scarcity and laziness in modern society. 
And basically, this is the whole reason why I'm doing this episode. Um, he, he said something along the lines of, humans evolved over hundreds of thousands of years in order to survive in a world with scarce resources. And because of that, humans always had to work hard to get what they needed in order to survive. Now, we live in a world of abundant resources, so people take the path of least resistance and are extremely lazy. So this is an extremely good observation, right? However, I will point out that most people today actually work a lot more than hunters and gatherers ever did, just not physically, right? Um, most of my research on this comes from Robin Dunbar's Human Evolution, as well as Christopher Ryan's Civilized to Death. So on average, a hunter and gatherer only spend about three hours a day on average foraging or hunting for food. The remainder of the day is basically spent hanging out, eating, sleeping, having sex, or doing uh, random chores around the tribe, right? So that, that is hunters and gatherers likewise take the path of least resistance just like us, and they only work as much as they need in order to obtain as much food as they need to survive, right? So they don't produce abundant amounts of food. Uh, they go out and they hunt for their food when they need it, right? And because of this, they stay healthy, they're fit, um, because they do the amount of exercise that their body was evolved to do, right? Uh, and they go out and they get the food that they need. And all this food is nutritious because it comes directly from the environment. None of it's processed. Um, you know, they just get actual meat. They eat the whole thing. They don't waste anything. Uh, and it, we actually see modern examples of this with the Hadza tribe um, in Africa. And I encourage you to look them up. Uh, there's lots of cool YouTube videos with the Hadza tribe. Uh, there's one on Fearless and Far the Fearless and Far YouTube channel, where this guy goes and he visits them and, and he hunts with them for a day. There's a couple videos. It, it, it's really cool. I highly recommend checking it out. Uh, so, so they're very fit and healthy. You can look at them and you can instantly see that they're healthy. Uh, the, the modern human, on the contrary, is generally overweight and they suffer from several diseases, right? Unlike our ancestors, we both work too much and we consume too much, which is simply unnatural. Um, especially given the fact that most of our work is physically easy to accomplish, right? Um, that is, our fear and condemnation of starvation and death are consequently leading to our further descent into an unhealthy, overweight, and sick society. Our belief that nature is evil is causing us to reject nature, thereby causing us to reject and neglect our very own health, right? Um, we lock ourselves in these boxes all day, right, called rooms, um, we, uh, we separate, we try to separate ourselves from nature as much as possible, right? We wear clothes, we have rooms, we have cars, uh, all these buildings. We try to get away from nature as much as possible, right? Um, people don't even want to like walk on dirt anymore, right? A lot of people don't even like touching dirt, uh, so, so with that, I, I will have to agree that the modern human being is indeed very lazy. However, we only lazy because we work too much, um, or like we're we're not we're lazy when we're off work, right? We don't because we don't have energy to do anything. We don't have the energy to go like exercise, right? But our bodies are supposed to exercise. So uh, instead of exercising to go get our food. Um, 
we have to not exercise to get our food and then we get off work and then we have to exercise just to stay healthy, right? Um, which isn't really natural, right? So, but if we didn't produce as much, uh, what then would the owners and the means of production have to consume, right? In, in herd species, all resources are devoted towards overindulging the leader. The hive mind overtakes the psyche of each and every individual to the point where their individuality is invisible to outsiders, right? So ants, bees, termites, and humans alike all work their entire lives to benefit uh, both the herd as well as the leader of the herd. Uh, regardless of whether civilization is capitalist or communist, there's always a hierarchical structure by which resources flow. Um, and, and really, any communist, any society that claims that they're communist in our modern society is really just a uh, capitalist dictatorship, right? Because you can't not be capitalist in our society. It's completely inescapable. Um, the only difference in a communist society is that the owners of the means of production is the government, right? Because when you have this high of a population, um, you can't just trade things, right? That doesn't work. You can't share things uh, because uh, I'm not going to care for Peter in New York, right? And it's funny that he's Peter. <laughs> I, I definitely didn't intend to have the same name as Spider-Man, but anyways, I, I, I don't care about Peter in New York, right? I care about my family. I care about my friends. I care about the people that I know, right? In uh, tribes where people are egalitarian, um, it's easy for them to be, in a sense, communist, right? Because it's a small group of people that you care about and know, right? And that makes sense. But uh, when you have a society as big as ours, communism doesn't work, right? It's, uh, it's ridiculous. Uh, I'm not going to share my stuff with uh, Jonathan in Milwaukee, right? I'm going to share my stuff with my friends or my roommate or my girlfriend, right? Uh, the people that I love and care about, uh, not uh, Alexander in Minneapolis, right? Uh, it, people don't care about people that they don't know. It's just like it, it's it's really hard to do that, right? You're not going to want to give away your money to people that you don't know, right? And uh, when we have this invention called money, it's not like we're just going to not use it, right? It's very useful in a society as complex as ours, right? Our society is so complicated that we wouldn't be able to operate without money, right? Um, so anyway, so why when... Why does the hive mind take control of society? And I think this is because of population. Um, again, yeah, I know I'm mentioning population again. So th there's a threshold by which the population density of a species reaches a level that causes the individual to, quote unquote, lose themselves within the herd. Uh, we see this uh, research in a lot of psychology books where uh, when you're in a crowd uh, and people start doing something like, for instance, if one person stands up, everyone else is going to stand up at a concert, right? One person starts to clap, everyone else is going to start to clap. Um, people kind of lose themselves in the herd. So well, while they are able to think for themselves, it becomes more and more difficult to trust one's thoughts and actions if everyone else appears to be thinking and acting differently, right? You're going to want to follow what everyone else is doing because if everyone else is doing something, then uh, you don't want to differ from that because 
if everyone else is doing it, then they must be right, right? Um, so because you're gonna you're gonna not want to trust yourself because you're not gonna think that you're the only right person out of a hundred people, and uh, it's good that you don't because you'd be pretty egotistical if you did, right? Um, so, anyways, well, uh, with that, it is simply easier to follow suit with what everyone else is doing, right? And if one person is able to sway what everyone else is doing, then that person becomes the leader. So uh, in the American political system, we have two parties. And what does this do? Um, so in, in my Welcome to the Machine episode, I talked about uh, divide and conquer being the way of the powerful, right? Alexander divided and conquered. So not only does a politician utilize the hive mind to gain control, but they likewise utilize the concept of evil. So uh, by, by declaring that the opposing political party is evil, a politician can then justify all of their actions by saying that such actions help oppose the evil of the other party. Um, so like if a Democrat says that a Republican or the Republican platform is evil, uh, they can then do they they can then do something that isn't good or something that takes away your freedom or does something bad against you by saying that it opposes the um, quote unquote evil party right and likewise can a Republican politician do the same um, in regards to the Democratic platform right so. Uh, by having such strict black and white views of morality, the people who subscribe to these ideologies are unable to speak to those people in which they have been led to believe are evil. Uh, a lot of Democrats and Republicans cannot really even talk to each other without getting angry or flustered. And uh, if you were to humor what the opposing so-called quote-unquote evil party believes, then this would then make you evil, right? Um, and people don't want to think of themselves as evil, right? If you think what, if you think what someone is saying, if their entire platform is not good, then and you go and talk to them, uh, you won't want to be convinced of what they're saying because if you're convinced of what they're saying, or if you allow yourself to uh, even think about getting convinced of what they're saying, then you'll be forced to reconsider uh, your own morality. Right, and as humans, we don't want to do that. So, uh, I mean, uh, as a human being who desires that we're inherently good, uh, considering the opposing side contradicts this, and so we become angry. Right, that's why not talking about politics is generally the number one rule of all social gatherings. Not talking about politics, and especially not talking about religion. Right. So, in a world where we are controlled by the powerful through the use of arbitrary concepts of good and evil, how do we move past this? So, this is now where we enter the archetypes of the savior and the hero. Uh, I'll talk about a few heroes in modern myth, but we're going to start just because this is a Christmas session. We're going to start with Jesus Christ, right? So, what? We'll, but, well, first, what, what is a hero, right? So, for, for the most part, a hero is a person who essentially restores peace in a person, group, or place, no matter the personal cost of such a feat. I don't want to say that a hero is someone who defeats evil, because I want to use language that uh, 
kind of where we're not using moral base. I don't want to use moral based language here, right? Uh, a hero is just someone who restores peace, okay? Um, make everything okay, make people feel good, right? So, anyways, uh, we're going to start with the most famous savior and that of Jesus Christ, right? So, now how does Jesus restore peace? In other words, how does Jesus defeat evil, right? So, uh, first and foremost, he recognizes that sin, which uh, is consequently sin and evil are basically the same thing. Uh, he recognizes that sin or evil exists within every single human being, right? Every human being has the capacity for evil or to commit evil acts, right? Uh, this is something that is discussed a lot, um, uh, especially in, in Jungian psychology, right? The shadow. Everyone has a dark side, right? That is lurking within them. We all have the potential to commit evil things. And we need to recognize that. Uh, because if we don't recognize that and we say, oh, I can never do anything evil. That means that we can do evil things and say that they're good because we can't do anything that's evil, right? So that would contradict it, right? We can do things that are evil, right? Everyone has within them the capacity for evil. Um, or in biblical terms, everyone has sin within them, right? So, and then Jesus, uh, this is the part where it's going to get a little rocky because I'm not 100% clear on what it actually says in the Bible. But anyways, Jesus is basically the physical embodiment of God, right? God is a man, or God is a person. Uh, he's the son of God, correct? And by making it impossible to commit evil, or more so by eliminating the concept of evil altogether, is how he defeats evil, right? He forgives everyone. And the, the classical definition of sin is an action that goes against the will of God, but since Jesus died on the cross, this implies that basically God dies on the cross in a sense. In a sense, right? Uh, which then implies that it would be impossible to go against the will of God since God destroyed his very own ability to have a will at all, right? He almost... This death is granting the people their own will, right? Um, and that's, uh, that's an interesting thing, right? So in a sense, by dying on the cross, Jesus inherits the full weight of all evil that exists within the world. He bears the weight of all human suffering because he basically commits the greatest sin imaginable, killing God's son, right? Right. Uh, so that, that is, he sacrificed himself so that no human being ever has to experience evil again. Or not that they ever have to experience evil again, but more so that they don't have to suffer, right? He's uh, forgiving them. Like, it's all forgiven. It's fine. You can come back from this. Uh, evil is defeated through an act of love, not an act of evil, right? Thus, how destroying the evil that exists within himself, he is able to return to the world with forgiveness and love in his heart, thereby defeating evil wherever the light of love touches. So, we see this, uh, I wanted to mention that story because this story is kind of echoed through so many other stories in, uh, in books and movies that we see, right? It's the classical story of the hero sacrificing himself for the good of everyone else. Um, or the hero using love to destroy the bad person, right? 
Uh, the bad person here would be um, evil in general, right? But uh, I'm going to use the example of Avatar The Last Airbender, right? Not sure how many of you have seen it, but uh, Aang defeats the Fire Lord by taking away his powers. Uh, everyone's telling Aang, you got to kill the Fire Lord, you got to kill the Fire Lord. That's the only way to stop him, only way to stop him. But Aang says, no, I'm not going to kill him. And he finds a way to take away his powers. And he has to do this by staying firm in his own uh, grounding. I'm not going to kill. And he takes away the Fire Lord's powers by doing that. Um, that is uh, Aang's love, basically, for people. Um, his inability to kill the Fire Lord is what stripped the Fire Lord's powers away. So love doesn't destroy evil, but rather it overpowers it. It strips evil's power away from it, right? So uh, Harry Potter defeated Voldemort by blocking his spell, right? He didn't use the uh, Avada Kedavra killing spell to kill Voldemort, right? He blocked the spell uh, instead of killing him, right? And that's Harry's determination to not kill, right? His determination to not kill caused Voldemort to kill himself, right? Evil kills itself when you block it, right? When you decide that I'm not going to do that, I'm not going to be evil, I'm going to be good, I'm going to be a good person, I'm not going to hurt people. Um, because, I because Harry is recognizing that he could kill Voldemort, right? Um, and a lot of people would say killing Voldemort is a good thing to do. But since Harry is recognizing that killing isn't a good thing to do, because the type of person who kills is the type of person that he's trying to defeat, he chooses not to kill Voldemort. Instead, he blocks the spell, right, and kill them, and Voldemort kills himself. So this is also kind of mirrored, and it, also with the Harry Potter story, it's interesting because um, Harry chooses to sacrifice himself. He chooses to go walk out in the forest and get killed by Voldemort, just like Jesus chooses to die on the cross, right? Uh, it's uh, very interesting parallels there, and I think we do know that um, J.K. Rowling was inspired a lot from uh, her Christian upbringing. But anyhow, lots of stories are like this, where the hero has to sacrifice himself for the good of everyone else. Um, we see this in literally just so many stories. I, I'm not even going to name them. I'm sure you've heard a lot of them. So, uh, Anyways, th this is also mirrored by when he... And I've read a lot of Harry Potter, so that's why I'm going on in this. So th this is likewise mirrored when we learned in the first book that Voldemort killed himself initially by trying to kill Harry when he was protected by his mother's love charm. Evil kills itself when presented with love. That's all I'm saying here. So, uh, so that's kind of, that ties it back to why this Christmas special, right? So Jesus likewise died on the cross in order to destroy humanity's sins because by showing people love and forgiveness, their evil will kill itself, right? If we choose to be loving and forgiving of others, then we can basically overpower, um, the evil within us. And I'm using the word evil again because... As an evil, I mean like wanting to cause suffering to other people, basically. Um, we choose to overpower 
that with love and forgiveness. And because of that, um, any evil directed towards us is deflected right back at them, right? So uh, as my dad usually says, kill him with kindness, right? Kill him with kindness. So anyways, um, as you probably know, just another disclaimer, I'm not the type of person to believe that the story of Jesus Christ actually happened. However, I do think it is a great story and that it teaches us how we should approach evil in our everyday lives. Instead of going out and fighting evil, the story of Jesus or the story of Harry Potter or Aang the Avatar or even in uh, the Avatar movie, which I saw, the second Avatar movie. Um, so many movies, right? And, and so many stories. Um, it teaches us that it's better to defeat the evil in ourselves first or at least overpower it, right? Um, get rid of it. Right? Overpower it with love, right? We don't need to be angry at others. You don't need to spread hate. We can spread love instead. And we can overpower uh, these feelings of hatred or the feelings of anger with love and forgiveness, right? And upon this, we can turn the world with open arms of love and forgiveness, and by showing the world love and forgiveness, we help it to defeat its own evils. Indeed, what is evil but suffering, right? Suffering is not cured by making it worse. It is cured through love, right? Um, if you can't defeat evil, let it defeat itself, and if you're going to try to defeat it, just uh, use love to try to defeat it if you can. So, obviously, defend yourself, right? Defend yourself if someone's trying to kill you, obviously. But, you know, don't, don't kill them if you don't need to, right? Like, you don't need to do that to yourself, right? Uh, so, I, I will leave you with a quote from Friedrich Nietzsche uh, from Beyond Good and Evil, and it's, Whatever is done from love always occurs beyond good and evil. Merry Christmas, all. Take it easy.